Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Inspired Churches podcast. We're a church in Union City that loves Jesus. Our hope is that you'd be inspired to grow in God's Word as reflected in loving Christ more and more every day. So wherever you are, be a light. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspiredchurches.com. Good, good morning. Yes, good morning. Good morning. I'm excited for this week. I'm really excited for Friday night. We have something really special planned for you guys, so I really hope that you uh, carve out time and, and join us on, uh, here uh, uh, Friday night at 7. And then Easter is going to be great. Listen, parents, uh, please sign your kids up. We have uh, incredible events happening for kids that day as well. Um, and so for ages 1 to 5, we have a bubble Easter egg hunt. And then for ages 6 to 11, we have an escape room Easter event. Event happening, and so um, it's you can just uh, scan the QR code and uh, sign your kids up, and they're going to have a great time. But I'm very excited about this entire week. Also, the Lord just put this on my heart this morning as I was just watching everybody set up. And can we just you know thank our setup team, our uh, the audio team, our visual team, our broadcasting team? Some of them get up at five in the morning. Uh, to make sure you guys can sit where you're sitting and do what you do. And we just appreciate you so much. And so thank you guys. Thank you guys. So good. So good. Amen and amen. Well, as Pastor Phil said, this is the beginning of Passion Week, of Holy Week. Uh, this is the day where Jesus Christ uh, got onto a donkey and rode into Jerusalem. The story is actually pretty amazing because what he does is he tells his disciples, he says, hey, listen, go to the next city. You're going to find this donkey, and I want you to bring it back for me. And if the owner comes out and says, you know, what are you guys doing? And you just tell him, well, this is for the Lord. You know, and so they do. They go, you know, to the next city. They find the donkey that they're supposed to find in the exact spot that he said it would be. And, and the owner comes out and he says, hey, listen, this is for Jesus. And the owner was like, oh, okay, you know. And I'm like to myself, oh, does that like work? Like, can, can I do that anywhere? Like, can I be like in McDonald's and just be like, oh, those fries? Yeah, I need them. They're for the Lord Jesus, you know. And so it's just amazing. And so he gets on this donkey and he rides in and it's, in a, and it's a beautiful picture, but it starts off uh this week, this Easter season, and the passage that we're going to be reading from today is actually a dialogue, a conversation that happens between today and Friday. So it happens between Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and what he's doing is he's talking to his disciples about what's about to happen. He, he, he's preparing them for his death, for his ascension, that he's going to go and prepare a place for them, and he's having this dialogue, and it's in this dialogue that I believe that we're going to see some things about Jesus and really pose some questions. The biggest question really this morning is, do you actually know him? Do you actually know him? And so we're going to read in John chapter 14. And it's interesting because John is the one that sort of gives us the timeline of, of Holy Week. But really this particular uh, 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 story of Palm Sunday, you find in all four synoptic gospels, you find it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Jesus coming in, riding on a donkey. But this particular conversation we find in John chapter 14, starting in verse 5. John 14 
verse 5. Thomas said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. See that? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Can we just say that together? Jesus said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. That wasn't very good, but okay. Uh, <laughs> get some more coffee. Okay. Um, and, and he says this. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. That word show us means, means let us show us physically, show us a, a miraculous sign. You know, have the Father come before us in a miraculous way, right? But, but Jesus knows that that's not actually what they need. You know, Jesus knows that, that that's happening, and for some reason, we all think the same thing. We think, well, why can't, why can't Jesus just come right now and, and throughout all generations, all time, just be here so that way everybody believes in him? But the reality is, is that won't make people believe in him. Not, not in the relational way, not believing in him the way in which he wants us to believe in him. Because when he did, do, when he did do that, it's not like every single person on the face of the earth turned to him and, and called him Lord. So he knows that they actually need something more, right? And so look, look what he says. He says to, uh, to, to Philip, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you are not just my own words. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracle themselves. I'll tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He'll do even greater things than these because I I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word, Lord. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are here this morning and that we are uh, coming into Holy Week, into Passion Week, Lord God. And I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that this morning that you will allow our hearts and our minds to be able to uh, understand and comprehend and see and bring revelation and, and illumination, Holy Spirit, into who you are. And that, God, that we will grow in you, that through this message, Holy Spirit, that we will step closer and closer into knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. See, what we're looking at this morning is really an outrageous statement that Jesus made that was very controversial. It made people upset, right? It got people furious and offended and passionately angry. Now, someone might say, well, how is this message appropriate for the Easter season? Like, why, why are we talking about this? Well, well, here's why. Jesus Christ was a teacher. He was a teacher who walked around and told people to be kind and, and to care for the poor and to love one another, right? He laid his hands on the sick. He fed the hungry. He did all these things. And, and we know that nobody argues with, about that. Nobody gets upset about that. That's not controversial at all. Right? But then there have been tons of people throughout history that have done that. 
There's tons of people who've done that. Lots of people have, have taught be kind to others. Lots of people have taught, well, you know, give to the poor. Lots of people have prayed over the sick and, 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 been, and been nice. Lots of people have done that, right? A lot of sages, a lot of great teachers. But the question is, none of them have had the influence that this one particular person, this one single figure in history has had. And we have to ask, why? Why is it that this one individual, this man named Jesus Christ, how is it that he was so influential that he made the impact that he did? Because no one else in history comes close. And so you have to ask why. Well, it's not because of all the non uh, uh, all, all the non-disagreeable um, things he did, right? It's not because of all the non-controversial things that he said. It's not because of that. But it's because of the controversial things he said. It's because of the claims that he made. Jesus made claims that were stark. He made claims that upset other people. In fact, we did that this morning. Just moments ago, we sung a song and we said, I believe in God, our father. I believe in Christ, the son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection that we will rise again for I believe in the name of Jesus. Now you see that outrages people, that it's controversial. It gets people upset because of what it implies, because of its implication. It gets the postmodern pluralistic culture hostile because it's in the claims that you see the difference between Jesus Christ and everybody else. It's in his claims that you find the distinction. Therefore, you're not going to come to grips with the real Jesus Unless you come to grips with these enormous claims that he makes, these I am statements. And this is a huge one. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. That's controversial, right? And what's crazy about it is even though our consumer marketing culture would have us believe that Christmas is probably the biggest holiday in Christianity, actually historically Easter is. This week that we are beginning is actually the biggest holiday in Christianity. Easter is. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ had not been raised from the dead, that our faith, this thing called Christianity, is absolutely useless. It's pointless, it's meaningless, it's powerless. In other words, no Easter, no Christianity. No resurrection, no Christianity. Right? And so you have to look at these claims. Now somebody might say, well, well okay, I get it, look at the claims, but how do you know Jesus actually said this? Just because John says that he says it, how do you know he did? Well, there's several ways that we know, but let me just show you one that I think is really good, which is this. You have to understand that the Jewish nation was completely different than those other religions that were surrounding it. The, the religions to the West and the religions to the East were completely different. See, if, if somebody from the religion in the East were to say, uh, come, come and say, listen, I am God, well, that religion wouldn't be upset about that at all. 
That, that, because to, to, to Eastern religions, really what that means is that person is saying that they have more of the divine spark, more of the divine energy, more of the divine power in them than other people. But, but everybody has it at some level and, and there's multiple gods. And so to them, it's no big deal, really, if somebody else comes on the scene and claiming to be God. And same thing to the religions in the West, right? If somebody stood up and, and began to make these claims that they're God, well, the, 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 the gods of the West, uh, they were powerful, sure, yeah, but, but they had flaws, right? All, all the Greek gods, they all had flaws. And so if somebody came and said, you know, God, and, and did certain things, you know, you think of Hermes or whoever, right? But, but it's not that big of a problem, but not the Jews, See, the Jews had a completely different understanding of God. In fact, they didn't believe in multiple gods. They believed there was one God, only one. And that God was so holy that you couldn't even say his name. You couldn't even write his name down. That's how holy it is. So for somebody from that community to stand up and say he's God, first of all, they wouldn't even fathom that. They wouldn't even think about it. It's, it, it, it's blasphemous that the, that, that worldview, that religious worldview doesn't have space to make that okay. And even if some lunatic were to come out and say that, well, nobody's going to follow that person, right? Nobody's going to follow him. All of a sudden leave Judaism and, and stop and follow. But what's crazy is what we see is they do. Thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem and Judea begin to worship Jesus Christ as God. And you have to understand the implications of that. This is huge. Because if you're a Jew and all of a sudden now you're worshiping Jesus Christ as God, you're not just leaving some sort of theological framework. You're, leave, you're leaving an entire community. You're leaving family and friends. Think about it. You know, you get up and, and you go to the temple and you're going to sacrifice. You have your pigeon or, or, or your sheep or whatever. You know what I'm saying? That you're going to sacrifice and, and you're going to give. And, and it's part of everybody there. You see everybody there. The aunts and the uncles and the cousins and the friends. And it's, a, it's a big community thing. It's a hurrah. But now all of a sudden you're not going to do it. You're not there for that. Do, do you see what happens? And all of a sudden thousands of people when you think about it historically, thousands of people just almost instantaneously leave a religion that they grew up in, that their grandparents grew up in, that their great-great-grandparents grew up in, that their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents grew up in, and they just all just suddenly just left and turned around? That doesn't just happen. And so we have to ask, wait a minute, what is it that this person claimed that was so convincing that people would leave behind families and thousands of years of religion and relationship for. You see? It's in the claim. And so when we look at this claim, there's really three parts of the claim that I want us to look at this morning. First, the extremity. Second, the divinity. And third, the intimacy. So first, the extremity, second, the divinity, and third, the intimacy. So number one, the extremity. His claims, Jesus' claims, demands extremity. He, he will take you to the extreme. What, one theologian said this, that when it comes to Jesus, you'll see a lot of humility, but no modesty. A lot of humility, but no modesty. What he means is this, is when you look at the actions of Jesus, when you look at his actions, they are unbelievably humble. 
right? He was so tender with people. He was so gentle. He was patient. He was kind to prostitutes. He was approachable to children. He would weep in sympathy, right? Incredibly humble in his actions. But in his words, there, were no, there was no modesty at all. He was constantly pushing the envelope. He was constantly bringing up who he is and forcing you to have to make a decision, an extreme decision, a stark decision, He was always bringing it up and he was always pushing, saying, I am this, I am that, right? For example, in Mark 2, Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. Everybody gets angry and says, wait, wait, you you can't be healing this man on the Sabbath. We can't be doing any kind of work on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus do? Jesus doesn't say, listen, I point to the Sabbath. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the Sabbath. That's the difference. He says, I'm the source of the Sabbath. Do you see that? I'm the author of the eternal Sabbath rest right? He says, I am the bread of life. I am the gate. I am the true vine. I am the light. He doesn't say, I point to the light. He says, I am the light. And there's a difference. Therefore, Jesus' claims absolutely demand extremity. Absolutely. See, the average person in the Bay Area, and you can just look, Google it. There's all sorts of resources out there to show different surveys and stuff. That are, the average person in the Bay Area, they like Jesus, but they have some reservations. They like him, right? He's a cool dude. He's about love and, you know, turn the other cheek and, you know what I mean, right? Yeah, he's cool, but they have some reservations. But when you look at Jesus and what he does in the Gospels, he is relentlessly trying to avoid people from getting in that space. He was saying, you can't just like me with reservations. If you actually listen to what I'm saying, if you have any intellectual integrity at all, he says, I'm going to push you to the extremes. You'll either reject me because what I'm saying is the worst thing that anybody's ever said, or you'll accept me because it's the best thing that anybody's ever said. It's either the worst thing because it's a lie or it's the best thing because it's true. But there is no in between. He says, I won't let you just like me right? To really make the point stick, look at Palm Sunday itself. So here's Jesus and he rides in on a donkey. And as he's riding in, people are waving palm branches, putting them on the ground, throwing down clothes. Now this is a crazy uh, situation that happens because what you have is you have all these Jews waving palm branches and throwing down clothes on the ground. But, but this wasn't actually a Jewish tradition. This was a Roman tradition. So you have all these Jews doing a Roman tradition. Why? Because they're trying to make a point. See, what we see here is something that's very prophetic, but very problematic. It's prophetic in this. See, Roman tradition was that when a king would go out and have a battle and win, when they came back into the city, it was called a triumphal entry, that they came back triumphant. And so everybody would wave palm branches and all this sorts of stuff to celebrate his triumph, his victory. Now, this is interesting because here's Jesus coming in, but he's not coming in from a battle. He's heading towards a battle. He's heading towards the cross. But before he gets there, they're already proclaiming victory. They're prophetically saying, listen, you are going to have victory over death. You will have victory over the grave. You will have victory over the cross. It's very prophetic. But it was also very problematic because they were also saying, you are king. Hosanna, Hosanna, you are king. We just got through singing a song, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, he, right? You are king. And this was a problem for the leaders of the city because it put them in a corner. It put them in enormous difficulty because the rulers of the city of Jerusalem, 
uh, ha- had to figure out what are we going to do with this person because everyone's going to talk, well, what do you think of the new king? Well, either you're going to say he's king or you're going to say, oh, that's not a king. You see what I'm saying? You know what I mean? Either you had to admit he was or you have to admit he wasn't. And Jesus pushed that on them. Jesus pushed that on them and he pushes it on us. He says, you either have to crown me or kill me. Crown me or reject me. There is no in between. I'm either king or I'm not. You see? And anybody who's looking at the data, anybody who's seeking him, Jesus says the same thing to you. Crown me or kill me. I am, the, I, I am the Sabbath. I am the life. I am the truth. Now, either that's right and you have to come and adore me or it's wrong and you have to destroy me, but there is no in between. And if you find yourself somewhere in between, then you're living a fairy tale. You're just, it, it's illusion. It's a fairy tale. It's make-believe. See that? I am the way. I am the way. Not, I am a way. I am the way. It's very exclusive when you think about it, right? Not there's two ways or there's several ways. No, the, the way, one way, and that's through Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, our culture has a problem with that. Our society has a problem with that because our society says well, we want everything to be exclu- exclusive, I mean, inclusive. We want everything to be inclusive. We don't want to exclude anybody. We don't want to exclude anything. We want to be all inclusive. We want to include all thoughts. We want to include all worldview. Everybody, all inclusive. Well, the problem is that, is that when you begin to include everybody, then that means you have to include those who are exclusive, which means you have to include their exclusivity, which means that the minute you become all inclusive, you become exclusive yourself because now you have to either include them or if you don't, you have to exclude them. But by including them, you exclude them. Do you see what I'm saying? In other words, there's no way of escaping it. There's no way of escaping exclusivity. Everybody's exclusive. The point just is where? Where do you draw the line? In other words, truth itself is exclusive. See, truth itself excludes falsehood. Do you see? So there's no escaping it. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Is this too much this morning? This is what I mean. It's the most inclusive exclusivity there is uh, uh, because what happens is it, it includes even the weakest. You see, when somebody says, well, why can't good people just find God? Why can't that be the answer? If you're good, you find God. Well, because what about the bad people? Well, see, you're excluding the bad people. Well, you know, they don't really need to find God. You know, let's have all the good people hang out here. You know, good people can go to heaven and bad people can hang out in hell. Let's just do that. Well, there's a problem there. You're being exclusive, very exclusive. In fact, you're being more exclusive than Christianity is. You see? Because, because what you're saying is, is good people are in and bad people are out. But Jesus Christ says, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, you don't, you're not a Christian by admitting you're good. You're a Christian by admitting you're bad. You see that? In other words, how, how Christianity works is the humble are in and the prideful are out. That's how Christianity works. 
the humble are in and the prideful are out. Now, either way, there's exclusivity. He said, well, I, I don't know about that. I don't like that. You know, are you telling me that what the gospel says is that somebody can live a very bad, evil, do evil things, horrible life, and then on their deathbed, they can truly, authentically repent and Christ will forgive them? Yeah. Well, I don't like that. Christ is too forgiving. I mean, we like, we like God's grace when it's for us. But when it's for somebody we don't like, we're like, okay, God, let's hold back on, pump the brakes on the grace a little bit there, Jesus. Getting a little bit too extreme with the love, my friend. Right? That's what we do. Right? <laughs> Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity because it opens up to the weakest. See, Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity because if you're a Christian, you are the only people whose thought system in the entire world, whose thought system keeps you from thinking that the opposition is worse than you. See, because if you belong to a religion that says, well, if you're good, then you'll find God. If you're good enough, if you do enough, if you do enough religious activities, then you'll earn God, you'll find him. If you do that, then, then you have to feel superior to those on the other side. You have to feel superior to the irreligious and the non-religious, which is the same thing. I don't know why I repeat myself, sorry. Oh, oh, you know, you have to, you, you, begin to feel, you begin to feel more superior than, than, than those that, that, that are simply irreligious or even in the wrong religion. You begin to feel superior because you're saved by your works. Now, if you're a secular person and you believe all religions are relative, then you feel like you're superior to the people who thinks all religions are true. Check this out. Uh, Leslie Newbegin in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, um, has a wonderful story that he tells, and he repeats it. It's an old story, but he says this. He says a story about how no religion has all truth. No religion has all truth. Every religion is like six blind men grabbing an elephant. One blind man grabs a trunk and says, God is like a hose. Another blind man grabs the elephant's leg and says, no, God is more like a tree stump. Another blind person grabs the elephant's tail and says, no, God is more like a string. You see, every religion has part truth, but nobody has the whole truth, right? That's what they say. And that's what our culture says. Our culture says, hey, that's true. All religions are kind of right and all religions are kind of wrong. But, but, look what, but look what he says. Look at this quote. Leslie says this, quote, but do you realize the problem with the story? The only way you could possibly know that every religion has a part of the truth is if you think you have the whole picture. The only way for you to know that every single religion is blind is if you think you're not. The only possible way to say nobody has superior knowledge is to assume that you have the superior knowledge that you just said nobody else has. Do you see that? In other words, if you're a person who say, listen, there's no, there can't be anything such as God, this being that's all knowledgeable. Well, in order for you to say that, you'd have to be all knowledgeable which means you're the very being that you're trying to say doesn't exist. Wow. Do you see that? Yeah. Therefore, if you are a secular relativist, you're arrogant. You feel superior to people who aren't. If you're a religious person who believes you're saved because you're a good person or by doing all these religious stuff or by works, th then you begin to feel superior to the secular person. But if you are a Christian, that means you're saved by grace. 
That means when you talk to the atheist or the Buddhist or the Muslim or whoever, that, that you come to it and you know that they're probably better than you are. They probably are. They're probably better than you are. But you know that you're not saved because you're better. You're saved because of grace. You see? And the reason most people don't see Christians that way is because most Christians don't understand what it means to be saved by grace. So see, the claims of Jesus demand extremity. Crown him or kill him. You either have to accept what he says or reject him completely. But the reason they do is because the claim also demands divinity. He claims divinity, part two. He says this, I am the truth. He doesn't say I point to truth. I am the truth. There's a remarkable passage in Matthew chapter 23 where almost in sort of this offhanded remark, Jesus Christ says, um, all of the prophets and all the wise men, I sent them. I sent them. Wait, what? Now imagine you're there and you're physically seeing a human being in front of you. And he says, yeah, all the prophets and all those wise men, I'm the one who sent them. Like Abraham, yeah, I sent him. You mean Abraham from thousands of years ago? What are you talking about? Yeah, you know Moses, yeah, I sent him. Yep, I'm the one who did that. Ezekiel, yep, sent him. Do you see what Jesus is saying? The natural question would be like, how could you have sent them? You didn't even exist. And Jesus is saying, yes, I did. Do you see what he's claiming? He's claiming divinity. He's claiming that he is God. He is truth. Now, listen, we live in a society that says there is no such thing as absolute truth. Well, for somebody to say there is no such thing as absolute truth, you should just ask them, well, is that absolutely true? Because either you're including that statement or you're not. You see what I'm saying? It's circular argumentation. You can't escape the fact that there is absolute truth. Otherwise, that, otherwise that statement is, is, is false. So why say it? There is truth, you see. But see, truth isn't an abstract. It's a person. Truth isn't an abstract. It's a person. The problem is we want our version of truth. See, we want, we want a God that we can manipulate. We want a God that we can fit in a little box for us to completely understand. And if we don't completely understand every single aspect of this being, then we're not willing to call him God. But if you couldn't understand in your limited capacity the, uh, fully this being, then that being probably isn't God in the first place. Look what Pastor John Comer says. He says this, here's how you know if you've created God in your own image. Not if God created you in his image, but if you created God in your own image. He says this, he agrees with you on everything. <laughs> right? Let me come out this a little different way. Watch this. In life, we say we have to have something to live for. We have to have some sort of purpose. And, 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 and you know, as we get older, this becomes more and more meaningful to us. When you're a little kid, you don't think about, you know, what's your purpose, right? And, and we might ask little kids questions. What do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a scientist or, you know, whatever. Um, or maybe not a scientist. I don't know. But whatever it is, right? We say all these things, you know, little kids. But, but, really, but really, they're not thinking about that. But as you get older, more and more, this thing of I have to have purpose. I need to, you know, what's my significance? You know, and, 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 and as death begins to encroach, you begin that feel like, man, I don't know if I'm making my mark in the world. And, and, and so there has to be some, there has to be some kind of truth, right? Some sort of truth that, 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 that you live for. 
you know, some, some sort of purpose. There has to be some bottom line. And so what do we do? We, we choose one, right? Now it could be altruistic, sure, right? Like you might be thinking, well, listen, my, you know, my purpose, my truth is that uh, I'm going to go and I'm going to work for a political cause so I can free people from certain people groups from oppression. That, that's my purpose. And that's, that's great. That's wonderful, right? Or maybe it's something different. Maybe you say, I'm going to live a very moral life so that way I can inspire somebody. Or maybe you say, I'm an artist and there's an inner muse inside of me or I'm a songwriter and there's something that needs to come out and I want to impact the world and, and the world needs to hear this thing that's inside of me because I want to inspire them and I want to, and I, and I want to give them wisdom. See, everybody has this truth that they're chasing. But here's the problem. Whatever truth you choose it cannot love you. Whatever truth you choose, it cannot love you because it's abstract. It will tyrannize you, right? But it can't hug you. It can't forgive you. It can only demand from you. Demand and demand and demand. But it, but, but it can't forgive you. It can't wipe away your tears. It's a thing. It's an, it's an abstraction. Yeah. And so then people say, okay, let's not look for truth. Let's look for love. And so they start going to other people and you start getting in relationships and, and you look for love in your kids and you look for love in each other and you look for love in friendships, right? But you soon, pretty soon find out that that doesn't work out, right? Everybody who just broke up with somebody that's still salty, say amen, right? You realize really quick, right? That doesn't work out. That love isn't true. So wait a minute, that love isn't true. So what do you do? When you realize that Jesus Christ doesn't say, I am a truth, or I'm pointing to truth, but when Jesus Christ says, I am the truth, then that means truth now becomes a person. In other words, he is the truth that can love you, and he is the love that is true. You see? Don't you see that? And all other truths will never really be able to hold you up. All other truths will break and crumble under the weight of what you put on them. All of them. Why? Because there is a sense of relationship and intimacy that Jesus Christ is calling us to. Number three, intimacy. Look at this, verse seven. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. You see that? From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Now look what Philip, look what Philip says. Philip says, Lord, show us the father. And that'll be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? He says, even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do, do, do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I am the only way to know the Father. Uh, in other words, I am the only way to change God from a horrible boss into a good good father. I'm the only way to turn your relationship with God from all of the negativity, from fear and uncertainty and condemnation to warmth and confidence and love. See, most of you, your relationship with God is exactly that. It's fear-based or it's confusion-based and uncertainty-based or it's condemnation-based. You're here because you don't want to feel guilty or you're following him because you're uncertain of the future or you don't know, you're fearful because, man, I don't know if it's going to happen and, and maybe I'm not holy. What happens when I die? What, what, what if I don't make it? What if I thought I was going to, and I don't make it? You see? But understanding, to, taking God from being a horrible boss into a good father changes those things. Yeah, yeah. It changes it. 
This is the essence of Christianity is personally knowing God, personal knowledge. That's the first thing. That's the priority. Everything else in Christianity comes second. Everything else is a consequence. Everything else flows out of that. So we have to see this. And it's simple, but yet profound. See, look, look what he says is Philip. He says, I've been with you for so long and you still don't know me. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Philip, it is possible to be standing around, to be listening to me, to be watching me, to, to, to even be doing, to be extremely busy in Christian activities, to feed the hungry and to feed the sick. Philip did all these things. He says, it's possible to do it all and miss the point. I wonder how many of us have been coming to church Sunday after Sunday, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, and we've been missing the point. Missing the point. Because when you look at the disciples and you look at Philip, you would say he's on the inside, right? He's on the inner circle. We'd for sure say that. He's on the inside. He's devoted to Christ, right? He was busy with Christ. He was, doing, he was busy doing the things Christ said. Christ says it's possible to be busy in the Christian life right? To, 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 to be full of that kind of knowledge, to even have that kind of zeal and not know him. That's a pretty remarkable statement. Jesus is making a distinction between about knowing and personally knowing, right? There's a distinction. There's a difference between informational knowing and relational knowing, right? You, and this is what's interesting. You can have informational knowledge without personal knowledge, but you can never have personal knowledge without informational knowledge. The, 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 one of the best ways to describe this is really the relationship between Buzz and Woody. If you remember Toy Story, right? You remember what happens. So here's Woody and he's like running, you know, the nursery or whatever, uh, Andy's room, Right. And, 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 and he's on top. He's like, you know, he's king. He's great. You know, he, he's the one, right? Everybody loves him. Yeah, go Woody. Right? And then all of a sudden, what happens? Andy gets a new toy. And here comes this spaceship on top of, uh, on top of Andy's bed. And out comes Buzz Lightyear. And what does Woody do? Woody begins to instantly get informational knowledge. Begins to see the craft he's in, begin to see all the things. Oh, he has wings and he claims he can fly and he has the space helmet. And he, he begins to get informational knowledge. He gets his name. He, get, he begins to get all of this stuff. And, and from informational knowledge, he treats Buzz a certain way. Well, as the movie progresses, if you've watched it, you know that what ends up happening is they begin to have a relationship. And Woody goes from informational knowledge to relational knowledge. And, and, and watch this, and it begins to change how he interacts with Buzz. But he doesn't just change his relationship with Buzz. It changes how Woody sees everything. It changes how Woody understands love in general. Do you see that? Do you see that? See, you can have informational knowledge without personal knowledge, but you can't have personal knowledge without informational knowledge. That's why when people say, oh, I can get to know God without the Bible. No, you can't because you, listen, you can't have personal knowledge without informational knowledge. You can't do it. Now we can have informational knowledge, right? We can get, we can get informational knowledge by studying. Maybe, well, maybe we study something, right? We can get informational knowledge by eavesdropping. Us Christians, we good eavesdroppers. I mean, we eavesdrop like no other. You know what I mean? What's that sister over there saying? 
Brother Cantaloupe said, what? Let me just, we, we do that, right? It's our way of having discernment. You know what I'm saying? Right? We can get all sorts of that information. But, 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 and in fact, what Jesus says is, Jesus says this, not only is it possible, not only is it possible to constantly be around, around me and get secondhand knowledge. Most people get secondhand knowledge about him. You come and you listen to sermons and you listen to podcasts. And for years and years, it's, it's somebody's been telling you about it. It's secondhand knowledge, right? And Jesus is saying, not only is it possible for you to be busy in the Christian life and getting all this information about me and not know me, Jesus isn't saying not only it's possible, he's saying that's normal. This is what most people go through. This is most people's experience. You see? Oh. But do you know him? Do you know him? See, if you ask the average, if you ask the average person, you know, in the Bay Area, why did Jesus come? Some, you know, people say, well, he came to show us how to live. Or he came to die so we could have our sins forgiven. Those are both true, but they're missing the point. See, they're missing the point. If that's your answer, you miss the point. When people say, what's a Christian? And somebody says, well, a Christian is somebody who goes to worship, who acknowledges God, right? A Christian is someone who tries to live a life on a higher plane, right? A Christian is someone who, you know, goes to God when, when, when she's in trouble or when he needs help. You know, a Christian is somebody who gets inspiration from reading the Bible. And Jesus says, if that's your answer, you've missed the point. Philip, you've missed it. I came, I died, I was raised. I passed through heavens and would seat at the right hand of the Father. Why? Here's the point. So that you might know him. So that you might know him. So that you might see him. See, and until you decide that whether what he's saying about himself is right or not, and you agree with it, and you make a personal connection with him, then nothing else that you do in this Christian life will make sense. It won't make sense. It doesn't matter. All of your philosophical questions, all your intellectual questions, all your needs that you're, need, that you're wanting to go to Jesus for, none of that will make sense if you don't get this, if you don't get it, Right? He's saying to you, if you have doubts because you've dealt with him in a completely abstract way, then you have to be honest with yourself and say, is my problem with him really intellectual or is it personal? I don't like losing control. I don't like looking silly. I don't like what would happen to me if I gave myself to him. See, you better be honest because there's no such thing as a personal relationship without personal disclosure and honesty. See, the real problem that our society has with Christianity isn't that it's too religious. It's that it's too personal. It's too personal. It gets in your business. It gets in your business. You see? That's what it means. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We can take it backwards. He says, I am the life. Right? In other words... I'm the reason for your living. I'm not here to help you with your career, right? I'm the reason for your career. I'm not here to help you with your life. I'm the reason for your life. I have to be first. I am the truth, 
That means my teachings have to proceed, have to have precedence over your feelings, right? Over, over public opinion, over what you think is practical, over the opinion of your friends or even the opinion of so-called experts because he isn't a truth, he is the truth. You see? He is the way. That bugs us. That bugs us. He is the way. Well, why can't we just, why, why can't there be many ways? Why can't there be several ways? Because that's not how you get into someone's heart. You see, you don't get into someone's heart by doing it your way. The person has to let you in on the inside. See, if I were to go to Becca and when we first started, you know, talking and dating and stuff, and if I were to say, hey, I want to get to know you. And she's like, great, let's go to coffee and let's talk. If I were to say, no, 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 we're going to have a discussion right here. I want to do it right here, right now. She'd be like, boy, you crazy. I can't get in her heart that way, right? No. I know that in order to get into her heart, I have to be relational. That's the only way, and the only way is for her to let me in. She knows how to get into my heart is to cook me something good. Right? Opens me right up. Say, I love you. See, you, you, said, you, can't just come in, you can't just come in any old way you want to. You have to be let in on the inside. And Jesus is saying, hey, I'm on the inside. And I'm the way to get to the Father. You see that? I'm the way to get to the Father. And he says, see, Philip, if you see me, then you've seen the Father. Now, what's interesting about that word see is, is we have the one word see, but actually in Greek, there's two words, right? The, the, the first word is blepo, which means to see something physically, like with the retina of your eye, to physically see something, right? But the second word is hararo, which means um, like to understand, now, now, we use see in both ways, don't we, right? Like right now, I can see you, right? But also, if you were explaining something to me, I could also say, oh, I see. You see? And it's the second way that Jesus is using. It's the see and the understanding type of way to acknowledge it, 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 it's a personal type of way. And, and what he's saying, he says, I'm the way to the Father. I'm, I'm the way to take you from having God to be a horrible boss to a good, good Father. To go from information to personal. From informational to personal. And you say, okay, Pastor Roger, I hear you, I get it. But how do I know, how do I know if I know God informationally or if I know God personally? How do I know? It's a great question. Join us next week. No, just kidding. I mean, look at this. See, when you look, for example, when you look at something like the cross, when you look at something like the cross, you may have informational knowledge about what the cross is, but when you make it personal, then all of a sudden it does something inside of you. In, in other words, I can no longer treat my spouse any way I want to because I see how God gave himself, how he sacrificed. I see this unconditional love. I see this crazy act of forgiveness that happens. And because of that, then I also have to show forgiveness. I want to. 
you see? Or with my kids, because it's not informational, it's personal knowledge, and I personally know how, how patient God is with me, then now all of a sudden I become more patient with my kids. Do, do you see how that works? Or, or, or if I'm constantly anxious because I need to be in control and I don't know what's gonna happen, and, and so fear and anxiety, because I'm not sure and, and, and I need to hold it, and if I'm not in control and if I don't know, then I, I'm, filled with, I'm filled with anxiety. Well, we'll see, if I personally know God as the good, good father, then, then I can trust him and all of a sudden anxiety, I don't have to be in control. He's in control. And, and so anxiety begins to dissipate. You see what I'm saying? Or when I'm triggered by insecurities or, or, or when somebody comes to try to correct me and all of a sudden I clap back and I get defensive. No, 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 no. That's how you know it's informational and it hasn't become personal. Because if it becomes personal, you begin to be okay with somebody coming and correcting you. You want accountability. You want discipleship. You want a community that can open up and you're able to confess your sins. You don't have to worry about, well, what's this person going to think of me and how's this going to happen? All of that's been handled on the cross. All of it has. All of it's been handled. You see what I'm saying? Or constantly having to give my resume, having to be the smartest person in the room because I don't want to look dumb or I'm willing to throw one of my employees under the bus because I don't want to let my boss know that I dropped the ball. But if I'm truly known, and if I'm fully loved by the good father, if I know that, if I'm confident in that, then I don't have to do those things because it's not just informational, it's personal. You see? You see? Would you stand on your feet? I wonder how many of us this morning would say, you know what, if I'm real honest, I would probably say that I have informational knowledge about God. But there are definitely places and spaces in my life, in my attitude, in my mind, in my heart that, that hasn't brought it to personal yet. If I'm real honest, there are certain things that I do because I don't really understand or I'm not really confident that I am fully loved by a good, good father. As we get ready to respond, can I challenge you to just make it personal for a minute? Can I challenge you to just make it personal for a minute and allow God to just love on you? In Jesus' name. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by it's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. You are perfect.
Father, I thank you, Lord Jesus. I praise you, God. I thank you, Lord. I praise you, Jesus. I praise you, God. I thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I praise you, God. I praise you, God. Listen, I, I know that there was a lot said this morning, and, and maybe some of you felt a little uh, fire-hosed, like I just sort of un unpacked a lot. If you have questions about anything, I I'd love to talk to you after service. If Maybe there was something uh, personal or philosophical or theological that, that you just kind of want to run by me or make more clear or ask. I, I'd love to talk to you. Um, but I'm just going to pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you, God. I thank you, Lord God, because every day I have to be reminded that you are a good father. And when my actions when my thoughts, <laughs> when my heart tends to try to come against that. But Lord, I pray that your truth will speak louder than all the noise. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord God, for all that you do. Heavenly Father, I pray that we will be able to come to you, not in pride, but in humility, not saying we're, we're able to stand before you because now we've got it all together, Jesus. We did it. We got, we're good now. No, but to come broken, saying, God, I need you because I'm not good, but you are. You're a good, good father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. All right, everybody, love you guys. See you Friday night at 7 p.m. Friday night, 7 p.m.